Hi, this is Mike. Thank you for being a part of what God's doing at the Heights Fellowship. We hope you enjoy this message. We know it's not the same thing as being here in person, but we pray that God would move as you listen and as God applies this to your heart. Lord, who is the worst sinner? Who will perish? Who will not? Those who suffer, are they the worst? Those who die tragically, were they the worst? All those who proclaimed righteousness in your temple wanted to know who was the worst. And I find myself considering it. Am I the worst? I know I have nothing to offer but filthy rags. But you say, come to me. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land. I have seen you in your sanctuary. I have gazed upon your glory and power. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. I am the worst sinner. Still, I praise you as long as I live. I am the worst sinner. Still, I lift my hands to you in prayer. I cling to you because you are my helper. Your strong right hand holds me secure. Amen. Words mean a lot. We use them to communicate. We use them to express. We're really good at our words. Uh, some of us, though, sometimes need to be encouraged, hey, use your words. Uh, you tell your kids that. You talk about that. We're going to talk about words today, uh, last words in particular. And last words can be very, very revealing, as a matter of fact. Let me just kind of give you some kind of real-life examples. Flight 93 from Newark to San Francisco was interrupted by hijackers on September 11, 2001. The last words of Todd Beamer and a group of passengers that decided to retake the flight to keep it out of the hands of the terrorists, who we later found out were either going to target the White House or the Capitol building with that airplane. Uh, and they were successfully able to prevent that, but the plane crashed. The last words of Todd Beamer on the phone to his family were, are you guys ready? Okay, let's roll. Very famous statement that we know. Maybe you know the statement, you don't know who said it. Well, that, that's the guy right there. And then there was Hendrix. You may not have known that when Hendrix died, he was actually writing something. We don't know if it was a poem. We don't know if it was lyrics to another song, but they're very telling. They found the paper near his deathbed, on the, next to the deathbed, and it, the, the last stanza of the poem read this, the story of life is quicker than the blink of an eye. The story of love is hello and goodbye until we meet again. And then there was Marley who said, you know what? Money can't buy life. He was right there. It can't buy life. And then some of them kind of sadden you. Leonardo da Vinci, the great artist and architect, I mean, the dude was gifted. At the end of his life, he got to the end and he said, you know, I have offended both God and mankind because my work didn't reach the quality that it should have. My heart aches for him after the great things. If he only knew what he had given the world and how celebrated he was in that. And sometimes people try to be funny. Groucho Marx famously said during his life, he said, die, that's the last thing I do. 
His actual last words were, this is no way to live. Uh, And then there was Charlie Chaplin, the great silent film star, who replied as the priest finished giving last rites over him and said, may the Lord have mercy on your soul. He said something very telling. He said, why not? After all, it belongs to him. And then there's Ben Franklin, uh, who wrote and composed so many incredible thoughts and, and works. And he said, you know, toward the end of his, or at the end of his life, he said, a dying man can do nothing easy. He was told, rest easy. And he said, a dying man can do nothing easy. Last words are very telling. Well, this morning we want to talk about some of the last words of Jesus. And I hesitate, just so you know, this is a personal thing with me. Every time I post a picture of Christ on the cross, because we don't get it. We, our artist renditions are horrifically wrong and bad. Uh, some of you guys who work in trauma and ER, some of you guys who are first responders, recognize what happens. By the time Jesus Christ got to the cross, he had been beaten. He had no beard. It had been pulled out by hand by his torturers and tormentors. The crown of thorns in his head wasn't this thin reef of rose thorns. It was long Judean thorns that had been pounded through his skull into his head. He was bleeding profusely from that. He had been beaten time and time again. And then he had been flogged by, with the cat of nine tails. His body was not only not recognizable as Jesus was not recognizable almost as human. The body had begun to bruise and to swell. If you've worked in, a, in an ER, in a doctor's office, you know what a body does. The pictures we show of Christ on the cross are absolutely, horrifically sanitized and wrong. And we miss what the horror of man and the horror of sin can do to a person. So Jesus is on the cross, and understandably, because of the trauma he had been through, his words were probably very few. We don't know all of the words that he said, but the seven statements that are recorded, we're going to talk about this week and next. They're actually more statements than words, and they happen in a very short time frame, in six hours, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., On Friday, as crucifixions go, Jesus' crucifixion was short. Crucifixion was designed to last for days. Sometimes up to a week, a person could hang on the cross. It was designed to inflict maximum torture and torment on the one that was crucified. But because of what Jesus had already endured and because of the weight of your sin on him and my sin on him, Because it was so intense, Jesus died in a short six hours. Three of the statements that are made happened from 9 a.m. to noon, as best we can guess. The other four happened in the darkness that followed noon, from noon to 3 o'clock. Interestingly enough, three of the statements are recorded exclusively in Luke. Luke was a meticulous historian. And he recorded something nobody else recorded. Three of the statements are recorded by the Apostle John. You know why? Because he was there. He's the only one of the 12 that we know who was there. And so John records three. And Matthew and Mark record one other one between the two of them. The seven statements together don't just reveal what Jesus said. They reveal much about the mindset of the Lord and the nature of Jesus in the course of 
of the crucifixion and you understand he was very lucid, he was very aware of what was going on around him in the middle of this, and I'm going to use the term excruciating because it comes from the word from the cross, his excruciating pain. Another interesting thing to see is Jesus is quoting scripture very often in the midst of this. He he quotes from three different psalms, and the whole picture of the crucifixion is pictured in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. And so there's this Old Testament kind of backdrop to this whole thing, and there's a reason that the scriptures are constantly resourced by the Lord. Here's what I believe, is that God wants us to be very certain that what was said in scripture happened, that the scriptures were being fulfilled. He always wants us to connect what he says with what he does. And just to give you an idea of this, at the arrest of Jesus in Gethsemane that night, There's this mass, chaotic scene as this mob descends on Jesus. Peter pulls a sword and tries to fight them off. And he cuts off the the ear of one of the the, uh, attackers of Jesus. And Jesus stops the whole thing and he says to Peter, put your sword up. Put it in its place for all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Don't you think that I can appeal to the Father and have 12 legions of angels here in a minute? But how will the scriptures, there it is, be fulfilled? That it must happen this way. And so he turns to the multitude and you begin to see just just the power of the Lord exuding from him that they, they stop long enough to hear him. Speak, and he, he says, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as a robber? I was in your midst in the temple every day teaching. You didn't try to take me then. Why now? But he says, this has taken place. Again, the scriptures, the prophets may be fulfilled. God wants you to connect what he says and what he does. And so here are the seven statements. This week, we're going to move very quickly through the first three. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Today, you'll be with me in paradise, and woman, behold your son. Those are the three we're going to look at. This week, next week, we'll look at the afternoon statements. So let's jump into the first one. The first saying was a prayer, literally, to the Father. He didn't really speak it to anyone there, although they heard him say it. It was a prayer to the Father. Listen to what he says. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And they cast lots and divided up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him and coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. This is the setting. I want you to get a picture of the environment and the chaos that was there. And in the midst of that, Jesus is praying to the Father, Lord, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. This was made shortly after they dropped the cross into place there on the the place of the skull, the, the Golgotha, as it was called, as he was crucified. And it reveals, what I want you to see here is that he was fully God, even while he was fully human. 
His first words on the cross are not some kind of lament as to what could have been. It's not something said to his family, as, as you would see. As I read through all these last statements by all these famous people who putting those slides together at the start of the message, it's amazing how many of them said things to their family. That's appropriate. We expect that. But he didn't say anything to his family, nor did he say something to his disciples, nor did he say something about the ministry. There's no kind of social commentary there. What you hear from Jesus literally is a prayer about the eternity of his enemies. It's an incredible thought right there. And yet, if you understand the Lord, it's perfectly appropriate. By the way, what I've told you about this being speaking of God and as God This is not conjecture. This is not me saying, hey, uh, this is what I think. This is literally the testimony of Jesus' enemies. Let me take you back to Jesus' ministry. They were in Capernaum. And crowds, thousands of people are crowding around Jesus wherever he goes. They wanted to see a healing. They want to experience a healing. They want to hear these words that were different from anybody that ever heard speak. And they're in Capernaum, and they're in a house. You know this story. The house was crammed full of people. You couldn't even approach the door. Some guys have a friend who's paralyzed that they must get in front of Jesus because they're certain if they can just get him in proximity, Jesus will heal him. And so they do something kind of creative. They climb up on the roof and start taking the roof apart. And they they find where Jesus is sitting as they're deconstructing the roof, and they lower the guy down to Jesus' feet. Imagine the scene. Jesus watches this. The crowd's gone silent in the room as the guy is lowered down. And Jesus looks at him and he says, And seeing their faith, faith of his friends probably, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. That's a God act. And Jesus' enemies know this. Listen to what they say. And some of the teachers of the law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knows what they're thinking, like he knows your heart and my heart. He says, why do you question this in your heart? Well, let me ask you a question, which is easier, to say his sins are forgiven or to tell him, take up your stuff and walk home? Because everybody knows this dude's paralyzed. And he says, just so you'll know that I have the the authority to forgive sins, he looks at the guy and says, take up your stuff, walk out of the room, and the guy does. And they're amazed because this is something only God can do. And so when Jesus is forgiving those who know not what they do, this is the voice of God forgiving sins. This was not the rambling of some sort of dying criminal or wounded animal. It was an act of God. Here's why. If you study the life of Jesus, it's found there in the Gospels. Forgiveness dominates his teaching. It's demonstrated over and over in his life. In his manifesto, the the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 12, he teaches people to pray, and Father, forgive our sins just as we have forgiven those who have sinned or trespassed against us. Peter comes up to him at one point and says, listen, should I forgive like seven times? Jesus says, no, infinite, buddy. Seventy times seven. 
Jesus was constantly emphasizing that. By the way, forgiveness was always his reaction to faith. In the story that we read in Mark chapter 2, the faith of these guys that brought him, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Even in extreme situations, you remember the one in John chapter 8 where they have a woman caught in the act of adultery, and please understand this. She wasn't just implicated. There weren't pictures on TMZ. There, there weren't this, this emerging controversy online of something that was said about her and people were like, mm, we know who you are. They literally walked into the room and ripped her naked out of her bed of adultery and drug and shoved and pushed and kicked her through the streets of Jerusalem until they throw her at the feet of Jesus, demanding Certainly, he will condemn this great sin. And they look at Jesus and say, what of it, boy? What are you going to do now? And Jesus says, she's guilty. So the one of you who doesn't have this sin, you get to cast the first stone. That's the law. And those people dropped their rocks and left. Jesus looks at her and he says, where are those who accuse you? And she says, they're not here. He says, neither do I. I forgive you, go and sin no more. Even in extreme instances, his nature was to forgive. It was his last instruction as he gave the last supper in the upper room the night before the crucifixion when he said to them, listen, this blood is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of many. And after he resurrected... He was back at it telling the disciples, listen, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins are forgiven. Jesus was praying for forgiveness. And the question is, was his prayer answered? And I'm going to tell you, yeah. It was answered at least three times that day. We're going to hear in just a minute about the thief on the cross. One of those crucified with him. We'll get to him. We also know that the centurion and the soldiers with him came to salvation. When Jesus died, they literally said, certainly this was the Son of God. That's a monumental statement for a Roman soldier to make. They recognize the fulfillment of what God had said. We also read in Acts chapter 6 verse 7 that some of the priests who were crying for his blood early in the day because they witnessed what they witnessed and saw what they saw come to faith in Christ. And we see them invested in the early church in Acts chapter 6. The point is all of this was a fulfillment of the scripture of God looking to forgive the sins of people. And 700 years before the crucifixion it was prophesied. The prophet Isaiah says this about Jesus. He exposed himself to death. He was counted among those who were sinners, and he bore the sins of many and interceded. That's prayer for sinners. How cool that Jesus' words on the cross start with forgiveness. Now, let me ask you a question. Let's get real personal here. Who were the they and the them? Forgive them. They know not what they are doing. Who, who is them and they? 
there, there's a lot of possibilities. It could be the crowd. We, uh, I made sure I read context for you so you could see them insulting and, and you know, challenging Jesus. Come down from the cross. The crowd, the Roman soldiers were doing it. There were those who were gambling for his clothes. They were profiting from his death. There were the Jewish leaders. There were, were religious vultures like Pilate and, and some of the Jewish hierarchy. There were even the disciples who abandoned him. Maybe he was praying for any of them. Or maybe he was praying for us. And the answer to the question is, who is them and they? The answer is yes. It's all of the above. Here's why. Because forgiveness flows from the blood of Jesus. It still does. And the cross becomes that intersection, that meeting place where the wrath of God and the mercy of God coincide because of the love of God. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Let me jump to the third statement. We'll come back to the second. The third statement, first statement was a statement of his deity, his godliness. The third statement is a statement of his humanity. Very simply, and John records this, standing at the foot of the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary... Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing there, there's five people there. Jesus' following had dwindled to five. Mary, his mom, you expect her to be there. Mary, the wife of Clopas, we don't really know much about her. Uh, We think she was the mother of one of the disciples. Clopas is another name for Alphaeus. And there was James, the son of Alphaeus, who was one of the twelve. So we think it was his mom. Then there was his mother's sister. Matthew and Mark give her name as Salome. She's noted as Mary's sister, which means that Salome, the mother of James and John, was the sister of Mary. That makes James and John Jesus' cousins. Isn't that cool? She's there. Mary Magdalene, who Jesus had done a major deliverance in her life, we hear in the scripture, was there and there was one other. There was John, the only one of the 12 who was there. And Jesus looks down in the midst of his torture and torment and he sees his mama there. And he knows she's got no one to care from her. I want you to understand the family dynamic. To our knowledge, Joseph is dead. He hasn't been mentioned since Luke 2. He's been referred to, but he's not been mentioned as active and alive since Luke 2. So we think he's gone. And we know from John chapter 7 that the rest of Jesus' family didn't believe him. So Jesus knows his mom, who is thoroughly invested in him, who's full out in favor of him as his mama and as a follower, it has no one. And she needs to be cared for. And with his humanity, he's going to take care of his mama. And it says that Jesus, in the midst of his pain, looks down and sees her pain. Because you see what she's experiencing that was fulfilled in script. That was fulfillment of scripture too. At, at the presentation of Jesus at his birth, when they take him to the temple to present him as the firstborn, they run into a guy named Simeon who had been looking for Messiah for centuries, or for centuries, for decades. Simeon holds the baby Jesus and recognizes him for who he is, and he looks at Mary, and he says. This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and other to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God and many will oppose him. 
and the deepest hearts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your heart. Jesus was a baby when those words were uttered, but he knew them well. And he knew this was the moment when her heart was pierced. And so Jesus, in incredible compassion, shows his love for his mom. He was fully human. He wanted to take care of mama. So he looks at John, he says, take care of her. He looks at Mary and he says, he's your son. He's going to take care of you. Watch out for him. And you see something here, folks, something that Karen referenced, something that we want you to get as a part of the Heights Fellowship. Faith is the thickest and most important blood that flows through your veins. The scripture tells us that our families by blood sometimes will reject us and abandon us because of faith. But we must recognize that we as a family of faith are so because of the blood of Christ. And we must respond and react to one another accordingly. And Jesus is evidencing that by saying, here is your mom. Here is your son. They weren't biologically mother and son, but through the blood of faith, they become so. And so are all of we in this room, in the church, around our country and community, but certainly within the world, are the family of faith. And we need to think and act and speak and move in terms of that. It's an incredible presentation of the humanity of Christ, which brings us to the last of the three statements, which is the second one that was actually uttered. In Luke chapter 23, as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, somewhere before noon, this happens. One of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, and said, do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed are suffering justly. We are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. This man has done nothing. He was saying to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So who was this guy? Well, there were two of them. And they were probably more than thieves. Here's why. Romans didn't typically crucify people because of stealing. Here's what I think. This is the Martindale uh, archaeological survey determination, all right? Jesus was crucified in place of who? Barabbas. Barabbas was a rebel, was an insurrectionist, was a terrorist. Let's give it those terms. That's what he was. He was given to the overthrow of Rome out of Israel. That was his political bent. He was a radical. These guys were due to be crucified with him. My personal belief is that they were cohorts of Barabbas. And when Pilate was forced to release Barabbas and have Jesus crucified, he released him, but he went ahead and crucified his two cronies alongside Jesus. So that's who I believe these guys are. And originally, if you read Matthew 27, they both are hurling abuse and curses at Jesus. Both of them. But something changed with one of them. We don't know if it was the guy on the right or the one on the left. We just know it was one of them. I think he observed Jesus' demeanor on the cross. 
And, and I think he heard Jesus' prayer. And here's what I believe happened. I believe the Holy Spirit took the prayer of the Lord and began to work in the heart of this guy as he hangs dying on the cross as well. And here's the point, that in the middle of hell's deepest and greatest achievement on earth, hell never rose higher than it did that morning on the skull of Golgotha. In the middle of that, God's still able to save Think that through. And all the elements of your salvation and my salvation are there. First of all, there is conviction. This guy came to fear God. You hear what he said? Do you not even fear God? See, here's the point of conviction. This guy began to understand. It was real with him. Much more real than it is. I sad to say there was some of you guys who were listening to me today. That we all have an appointment with eternity. That means your life is going to come to a definite end someday. There is a God and you will answer to him. You say, I don't believe in God. That doesn't change reality. That's your perception. In fact, Romans chapter 3 says this about the unbelieving lost. He said, there's no fear of God. In their eyes. And so this guy is convicted and he looks at his friend and he says, Do you not even fear God? You see his perception about God. He could see Jesus differently. His perception had changed. There was conviction and then there is repentance. He says, Indeed, we suffer justly. We're receiving what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Do you catch that? He owns his sinfulness. This is my sin. I can blame anybody else, but this is my sin, and I can't do anything to overcome my sin. And so he understands his guilt. He understands he is spiritually bankrupt to, a, to apply for eternity. And so he turns to Jesus to be forgiven. That's repentance. That's why you can't have salvation without repentance because until you do, you're still trying to earn your own way. You're still trying to do your own thing. But when you turn away from that and you turn to Jesus and say, I got nothing. And that's what he did. That brought about a conversion. He believed in Jesus and he asked Jesus to save him. Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. He recognized Jesus as the door. Remember, Jesus said, I'm the door. Jesus said, I'm the gatekeeper. His plea was for nothing less than complete forgiveness. It was an expression of faith. He even recognized Jesus as the Messiah, as the sent one. There's a really cool verse over in Daniel chapter 12 where Daniel is talking about Messiah. Listen to what he said. He said, multitudes sleep in the dust of the earth and they will awake. You know what that's talking about? That's resurrection, y'all. Messiah is going to bring about a resurrection, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting contempt. So he says, Jesus, resurrect me. I know I'm going to die. I'm trusting, I'm praying that you would raise me up and I would have eternal life. Now, I want you to notice what's not there, okay? Because we have all sorts of different religious traditions represented here in this community and online. He didn't perform some kind of religious ceremony. 
Man, for some of you Baptists, you're going you're gonna to just recoil from this because he didn't come down an aisle and sign a card and shake the preacher's hand. He wasn't presented in front of the church. He did nothing for his salvation. For some of you guys that were raised Church of Christ, there was no baptism. This guy literally calls out to God, and God says, you betcha. I'll respond to that faith. There was no miracle afterwards. He didn't speak in tongues or climb down, or climb down from the cross. It was just beautiful, perfect forgiveness and salvation. And notice, he didn't get delivered from the cross because he got saved. He got delivered from eternal death. But he still died on the cross that day. And notice what Jesus' response is. It's what his, always, it's what his response always is. He's consistent. His response was immediate. This day, you will be with me in paradise. The guy had said, Jesus, remember me. Jesus said, buddy, I'm not going to remember you. I'm taking you with me. And guys, that's what he does. When we die, the Lord comes to get us. I believe himself. I've prepared a mansion for you in heaven. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus said, I'm taking you with me to paradise. And by the way, paradise is Bible speak for heaven with God. Over in Revelation chapter 2, we know this because God says to him who believes, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so what do we take away from this? Number one, salvation is a really simple process. Conviction, repentance, conversion. Is that yours? Is that your story? You, you may not be the thief on the cross, but is that your story, some version of that? I was convicted of my sin. I recognized that I couldn't save myself. I turned from trying to do that and looked to Christ and said, Jesus, save me. And I, I gave him my will. I put myself in his hands. And he saved me. Maybe it's not your story. It can be. But I can't think of a better day then today, the scripture says today is the day of salvation. Would you trust Christ? And we've been praying for that. If you're online, you don't have to wait to come to the church. You can do that right where you are. God will always meet faith with forgiveness. Second takeaway is this. This is to the believers. When you get squeezed... When the pressure comes on you, when the difficulty happens, how do you respond? They squeezed Jesus tight. They crushed him. All that came out was the sweet oil of forgiveness. Do you talk to God about the people who abuse you? Do you pray for their salvation? When you encounter them, do you extend grace? Jesus could easily have looked at the thief beside him and said, Oh, yeah? Dude, I was here two hours ago when you were hurling abuse at me. How do you like me now? But he didn't. He said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And there's this third thing. We live in a messed up world. Some of you guys need a family. 
There is a family for those who come to Christ in Christ. Maybe you need to tell us that today so we can help minister to you. Whatever the Lord has moved in your life in these moments, don't delay that response. We're going to encourage you to have a conversation with God about it right now. We're going to tell you how you can respond so we can take practical steps to assist you on the next step of your journey. All right, let's pray together. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words that are more than just communication. They are relationship. They are showing us how we can rightly relate to God because they reveal who he was even in the darkest moment of history. Father, I pray for those in this room who have never trusted you. Those who are watching online who don't have a relationship with you. When I ask those three things, is that your story? And they couldn't say yes. Father, your intention is not that they doubt. Scripture says, I've written these things unto you. Believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You don't intend for us to go through life wondering, hoping, trying, straining, but to know and to have the assurance and the certainty we're yours. Father, truth is, for some of us, we need to turn from our sin and yield our life to you and say, okay, Jesus, I trust you alone. I pray that in this prayer right now, right wherever they are in this room, online, that they would do that. Father, for some of the Christians in this room who are going through the extremities of life and the difficulties of life, that they would respond the way you responded on the cross with grace and with love. And they would talk to you about their tormentors and their accusers. And Father, you would work your work in their life the way you did it in Jesus' midst. Father, there are some here that need a family. Or they, they may be in the church even, they, but they've been drifting. Father, that this would be the place that they plant. Father, you would make the soil rich. You would make the water pure and it would grow them so that they produce great fruit. So thank you for your love. Thank you for that day on the cross that bought salvation for all of us. In your name, amen. Well, thank you for being a part of what God's doing here at the Heights Fellowship. If the Lord led you to make a decision or you have a question or a need, we want to hear from you. Send us an email at the email listed below, info at theheightsfellowship.org. And we will join you in praying as you take a step forward on your journey with God.